Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of season three of Intimate Animation. I'm Ben Mitchell. I'm joined by Laura Beth Cowley. Hello, Laura Beth. Hello. Well, yes, it's been a uh, busy few weeks since episode one of season three. We're gearing up at the moment for this year's Encounters Festival here in Bristol. Squiggly's going to be kind of a bigger presence at this year's Encounters than usual. I think everyone's kind of popping their head in at some point or other, which is great. You can see us all in person. Isn't that exciting, huh? I, I can't answer for the audience. <laughs> I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah. Dan Tootin. This episode's guest is Floor Adams, who did a film called Mind My Mind, and that's going to be screening as part of the uh, Encounters International Competition Program. Uh, so we're going to hear a bit about her film later on. It's a pretty long one, all things considered. Like in the sort of world of short films, you kind of expect something kind of between 5 and 20 minutes. And hers is, you know, it's episode length. It's a full half hour. And that is kind of for a uh, film festival curator or pre-selector, as I was for this year's edition, that's kind of... You see 30 minutes long and your heart just sinks. Uh, this was one way. Pretty much immediately you knew, okay, this was actually a whole other kettle of fish. This is a proper production. It's about a guy who is on the autism spectrum, who has, you know, his passions. He's very into model aircraft and things like that. And his sort of fumbling steps toward a relationship. We'll talk a little bit more about that closer to the interview. As it's been a little while since we've kind of canvassed the world of uh, animation that deals with themes of love and sex and relationships and whatnot, that being the main thrust of this podcast, I thought maybe we'd take a little look at the Encounters program as a sort of preview of events to come and talk about some of the films that fit into our radar. Maybe it'll entice some of you to go check them out. So the international competition programs kick off on Wednesday at noon, uh, they'll be at noon and six every day, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday throughout the week. After each screening, I'll be doing the filmmaker Q&A. So uh, for the filmmakers who are in attendance, they'll be able to share a little bit more about some of their films and what they've done. The first film that kind of kicks things off, I'm not sure if it's one that's sort of explicitly sexual, but it's quite sensual. Uh, it's called Half Asleep. It's by Kai Bai Kai, which is very probably not how you pronounce their name. It's 2D animation. It's very kind of anatomical. It's sort of centered on these disconnected limbs that are kind of in a ongoing relationship. Limbs and butterflies. It's a good example, I think, of what animation sort of implies rather than sort of explicitly states. Like There's a lot of films that kind of deal with even sort of abstract films that have these kind of sexual elements to them that can get quite explicit with the visuals. And in this case, you don't really see anything beyond the quality of movement of the limbs. And it's not even really necessarily a kind of sexual interaction. Like I say, it's more of a kind of um, almost like a dance or a, something sort of choreographed. I think at some points, the butterfly in this environment is kind of precariously placed in the composition to sort of imply something. Because you're never quite sure what body part is meant to be what and what the butterflies are sort of suggesting and sometimes they have touched very delicately and then sometimes they're broken and smashed and you're trying to decipher what the director is trying to say. Sometimes I like it when you crush my butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. The, uh, the sort of fish hooks like through flesh was a very kind of Clyde Barkery. I think that's why you liked it, really. Why well, I liked it. Yeah. You know, just because it reminded me of Hellraiser. Yeah. Yeah. I can't. We've been on a Hellraiser kick in these podcasts. <laughs> so the first film of animation to Desire is called My Moon. It's also abstract, a lot less abstract. It's pretty is accessible. It really abstract? Well, insofar as like it's vaguely metaphorical I don't or allegorical. Think that's what abstract means. Well, abstract, there's a, there's a gamut of abstraction. I suppose it depends on whether or not abstract can extend to something that could be read as a character. Yeah, so then it is kind of, it's a theoretical idea put into a figurative visual. It's about the moon. 
<laughs> and oh. the sun and uh, the earth. It it didn't go how I thought it was going to go. How did you think it was going to go? Well, it, it's very, very pretty. Uh-huh. Like I said to you, it feels like it's from California. Like the way in which people interact with the world is very California imagery. Like it felt uh-huh. a bit like the bits where they're like walking around like little TikTok men. Like, hey, I'm going to work now. Uh, yeah. Felt a bit like an ad for California. Like, well, a, like bit, a tourism ad. Yeah. Like, here we all drink coffee at the same time and the sun rises. <laughs> yeah, that very kind of, I love the woman kind of like watering her plants. <laughs> like, <"Vah!" laughs> The way I thought it was going to go from the description of what the film was, was it kind of made it sound like it was going to be like a polyamorous relationship, (laughs) which would make sense because it's meant to be the earth, the moon and the sun. All getting on together. Well, also what was odd is that the, it's not really giving it away, is the fact that it's about the relationship between the moon and the earth and the sun and the earth and how the sun, the earth can't exist without the sun because we need it for like photosynthesis and then getting on with life and mm-hmm. eating and everything that goes on in the daytime. Not, not immediately dying. Yes, <laughs> not immediately. And how the moon feels like he's not as important so he's better off if he just leaves. Yeah, it's like the guy but, who kind of blocks the girl on social media and gets a yeah, bit hurt. But obviously we need the moon. What was odd is I didn't feel like they made it so that the moon, like, she gets upset about him leaving. Who? The Earth. Earth gets upset about the moon. What was also odd is that they didn't really discuss the fact that, like, we need the sun for the moon to work. So really, they are, <laughs> have a relationship as well. Because then you see the visual of, like, the eclipse when uh, the moon is going off in a sulk. I guess what's interesting and what would be interesting to maybe talk to the people that made the film about is whether the abstract concept was a visual device to discuss a kind of uncomfortable relationship or a unbalanced relationship where mm-hmm. I guess this woman has two lovers that know about each other mm-hmm. that are cool about it but not really well one of them seems cool about it the others in the straw yeah so yeah. it's like he, she's dating an emo and like a bodybuilder yeah it's a very, very pretty film. I liked it a lot. There's a lot of very nice design in it that is quite modern, quite current. Well, it's also kind of interesting is the way they kind of tell the love story element of it is through snippets of audio, like as though they're recorded phone conversations or answering machine messages of... It was like the relationship between the professor and the robot in Flubber. It took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> Where she, like, only communicates. She can sort of talk generically, but any kind of r- emotional thing, she has to get it from recordings she's taken off TV. Okay. But I like that, because I like... That was quite a nice way of getting around the fact that, like, what would the earth and the sun and the moon sound like? But yeah, you, de- you definitely get the sort of narrative of, like, hey, there's another dude on the scene. I'm going to walk away because I'm moody, man. Rather than like, ah, we're all mucking together. Devil's Triangle. What the heck? You know what else it reminded me of? It reminded me of that Black Mirror episode with where they're in the 80s. Yeah, the 80s, like, mind park. Mind palace thing. Yeah. I think just the general vibe of it, the kind of emotional charge and the colour scheme. Yeah. Uh, David Camp, I think, did the music. He's someone that has definitely come up on other podcasts and this, and he's, he's worked with quite a few. It's interesting. His work often accompanies animation that's very sort of graphically now. And this is very on the money in terms of what's really kind of big in graphic design at the moment and color. It has a bit of a Steven Universe feel as well. Yeah, the character design maybe of the Earth kind of reminded me... I was trying to work out what it reminded me of, and I think now that you mentioned that, it was maybe one of those, like, gem women things. I've enraged Steven Universe fans if I got that wrong. I think it's going to be a really strong favourite with students. Or beyond. I mean, just like I said, the the, the design element of it, it's certainly something I'm going to be showing people I work with because mm. they love this kind of thing. It's like, things very, that really embrace... It's very animation for animators. Yeah. Like, so I think of like when you see that gorgeous like concept art for feature films that end up looking nothing like the concept yeah. art. That's the great thing about these types of short films is they are, retain that look because they only need five or six or 
Well, this is eight minutes, but they only need a shorter time to fill. Mm. So that film is by Yu Song Lee. Given that the category is called Desire, there isn't an awful lot of films about desire in the amorous sense. It's more about sort of like yearning and longing. And um, I think yearning would have been a better title for it. Uh, yeah, perhaps. I mean, well, I mean, desire doesn't necessarily have to mean romantic desire. This film, no. like, for example, I love, it's not a sex film remotely, it's called Five Minutes to See, which um, is about, like, a kid who is just desperate to go swim in the ocean, and it's the five minutes she has to wait after, I think maybe she's eaten something or something, or has to wait, and she it's just, like, the desperation, and just kind of seeing, like, the way, you know, everyone else on the beach is having a good time, um, just sort of through the eyes of this kid. I mean, that's really nice. But that, you could see why that also fits the category, mm. you know. Uh, another film in this category, uh, called Tango of Longing. This was one that grabbed my attention for the technique, I think, more than anything. Again, this is one that's sort of more about, I guess, passion than, like, explicit love or sexual interaction. Not even necessarily all just sort of couples. There are different types of, like love and longing and desire that we sort of see. It's a film about more than anything dancing in the tango and some lovely observational animation, some stuff that I think is, you know, well, I'm pretty sure it's rotoscoped, but it's mostly done in the sort of sequential painting style of doing a frame of animation, painting it, and then repainting over what you already have for the next one. It's the style that Loving Vincent was pretty much entirely predicated on. But a lot of the sequences in this weren't rotoscope. There was a lot of original animation. The character designs, I thought, were really... I mean, they were quite grotesque, but they were kind of compelling. What did you think of those? I liked it a lot. It was, like you said, it was a nice use of that style of animation, which often gets used for not a particularly justifiable reason, other than I guess they just wanted to do a paint animation. Uh-huh. But it really was quite good at bringing together all those unspoken feelings and emotions that dance raise in people, uh-huh. especially when it's like tango is very, you know, lustful as a dance style. Uh-huh. So that ability to really morph in that kind of like wetness of the paint <laughs> yeah. sort of lingers quite well together. I mean, dance is a really awkward thing. I find dance really unpleasant. <laughs> as, as a thing like the idea of dancing with someone in a tango-esque way makes my skin literally feel hot and itchy you don't wish we'd done a tango for oh god dance. dancing is horrible it's <laughs> the most embarrassing thing even if you're comfortable with it like i get embarrassed for other people even if they're good dancers i'm just like why would you do this in front of people it's the the human equivalent of like those birds that have the colorful feathers and go like bah, 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 bah. <laughs> and the other bird's like, I'm not interested, mate. This this bird has a much bigger plume. <laughs> That's what dancing feels like to me. It just feels wrong and weird. And I'm you're always all, up against I, a bigger plume. I'm always surprised that we haven't evolved beyond dance. <laughs> like it freaks me out. But yes, it's beautiful. I have to say, like I I do like this style when it's done well. But it's it's to be brutally honest, it's very rarely done well. And this is probably the best example i can really remember seeing as far as how the animators kept track of all of the little details you need to keep track of when you're animating sequentially and so many of these paint animations they'll focus in on like one limb or one facial thing and the rest of it will just either be too static or it will just go haywire yeah or Um, it's all rotoscoped yeah which i think kind of needs a justification I kind of ping back and forth with Loving Vincent. We've spoken about that film with quite a bit of fondness when it's come up in the past on the podcast. And I do. Because it's a very good film. Narratively, it's really strong and it really does get across the idea of what he might have been going through on his last couple of days. Yeah. But the question always arises as to, other than the fact that obviously the central character is a painter, was there any other reason really for it to be painted? And well, that can be, you know, the justification in itself. The bits in Loving Vincent that kind of I was less enamoured of were the more direct flashback sequences where they then stopped painting in this sort of facsimile of Vincent van Gogh's style. And it was just a kind of more generic painterly look just painted on top of the live action. 
That puts I'm, you in mind of the show we've been watching as well. Yeah. That one is another one that I'm like, I'm still not 100% sure why that... My argument would be, did all of it need to be painted? Or did all of it need to be rotoscoped, hand-drawn? Or should it have just been the parts that needed to be there? Or should it have just been the bits where we're seeing through Vincent's eyes? You could kind of argue for both, I think. Like, maybe it should have been the flashbacks that were more Vincent van Gogh-like because he was still around in those, or... Yeah. But the the point you make about the show, the show is called Undone, and it's this quite new show on Amazon. I think it launched a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I was quite interested in seeing that because um, it's done by people who worked on BoJack Horseman and uh, Bob Odenkirk, is in it, who I quite like. And it's a f- show about... It's not really a show about love necessarily, although like relationships kind of have a role to play. Certainly, the kind of main relationship between the main. I character think it would fit her. in terms of the relationship between her and her partner, yeah, and what that ends up being, and the relationship her sister has with her yeah. partner. So it does show that kind of dynamic and relationship side of things when other life things are kind of in the way. Yeah, the premise is it's a woman who is, I guess, in her 30s, and she has a family history of schizophrenia and gets in a car accident and goes into a sort of fugue state wherein she's convinced by visions of her long-dead father that she has to avenge his death, essentially. And he, or this specter of her father, kind of convinces her that these aren't schizophrenic episodes, that this is actually her manipulating time and space. She's some sort of shaman. Yeah, very sort of drawing upon... Native American cultures. Sort of indigenous um, shamanic, shamanistic practices. While making the point that I think has been made quite a bit before of like how in other cultures, a lot of the conditions that we consider to be, you know, hallucinatory, schizophrenic, manic episodes are revered in other cultures. And as the series kind of unfolds, you, you realize that this was something her father had, while alive, become sort of obsessed with. And that's possibly what's informing these visions of hers, if they are all in her head. And I won't sort of go into how it ends, but I, I think they ended it in a way that they wanted to keep it open to do more. Because it doesn't really tie things up in a bow. But I also don't know if it would be considered a completely satisfying ending if it was a one-off. You know what I mean? I quite enjoyed it, to be honest. I guess what that show kind of brings to mind, in the similar way to Loving Vincent, the necessity of rotoscopy, or rotoscopy, rotoscopy sounds quite medical, when it's just sort of being done for its own sake. And I think that maybe, though, I think probably the reason why they decided to do this show undone, entirely rotoscoped, was just to guarantee a certain degree of visual consistency between the relatively mundane narrative expositional sequences where it's just characters talking in a room and the very visually ambitious transitions and morphing sequences. Whereas in other shows, if you don't have the right production values, that can be really disjointed, you know? I'd be quite interested to see with The Undone Show whether it was actually all hand-done or whether it was some sort of coding because there were some bits in it that I feel like if you were doing it by hand and you were like you know you had the ability of going back and forth a lot of the time with the hairline it kind of judders yeah I wonder if it was actually a filter here's my theory on it just from observing it because I was quite a lot of the scenes I was just sort of analyzing and I may have this completely wrong Mm. but I think that the footage would have been run through a filter to generate the colors and the textures and the, the shadows kind of look. yeah and it, that i think was probably run through a filter to kind of because that was often that didn't really boil that no, just, just kind just of flattened everything yeah whereas the line work does boil quite a lot and like it's mainly the hairlines i notice it judders quite noticeably but the eyes and the facial features in general are pretty consistent what was weird about that is that they would they separate, like, you remember when they go and see their dad's assistant's boyfriend as an adult, and his hair is like this thing, like the skull cap that's just on the rest of his head. Yeah, it's almost like it's a sort of plastic hair hat. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hair like hat. Like the people in uh, Lazy Town. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a story perspective, it was definitely, I mean, the woman who uh, I, I read up on it about, the main woman who was sort of the creative force behind it, who was called Kate Purdy, uh, she did an episode of Bojack Horseman, I think. She did a few, or perhaps still works on it, but the one that she did that I think was kind of particularly relevant as regards to the show is an episode that just completely goes off the rails and it's about Bojack Horseman just sort of doing lots of drugs. Oh, is that the underwater one? No, this was... I really like that one. That was a good one. This was one, it was just kind of like he's just high the whole episode and you think he's gotten through it and then he's still high. This was very early on, it was like the first season. It was very tonally similar to this show. Certainly the second episode of this show. So I think, and there's a lot of elements, I think, of the very heavy-handed pathos of Bojack Horseman and the interpersonal ennui that people have to deal with. But also, I mean, to me, there there seemed to be, like, a lot of fleabag in there, just as an influence. Like, the dynamic between the sisters The first episode, like, I was just like, are they going to make her fall in love with a priest? Because that's a (laughs) bit much. It's the one thing they, yeah. And also, I guess, like, toward the end, there's a wedding scene that's a very Fleabag-esque, like... But it, it, it wasn't it wasn't really a Fleabag rip-off. Like, I just no, noticed no, no. It's just... that... I, I mean, it may be that Fleabag wasn't an influence, but I would be really surprised if it wasn't. But it's nice to see that that show has kind of penetrated and is, you know, yeah, proving itself it's, an influential it's show. It's this idea of this very self-destructive female character who... Like, it's... It, I think it's quite often suggested that Fleabag has some sort of mental health issue, like she has manic depression or something. Yeah. And I think that's where that probably comes from, is like these kind of loose cannon says whatever's on the tip of their tongue all the time. It kind of feels hard done by even when it's their own fault. People, we all know people who are immensely charming when they're in a certain headspace and they kind of draw you in. And then when you get to know them a bit better you realize that there is this other side that is chaos. And sometimes you're drawn in and you want to help, and then you realize that the person doesn't necessarily want help, and they're kind of in this and holding pattern. there is no helping. Certainly not from just mates. Like, sometimes serious intervention is needed. Also, the point you brought up about, like, the story element of her and her partner, the, I guess, willingness... He has initially to kind of go along with this, you know, what to him is a delusion. And, you know, there's a point when, if you, especially if you're in a romantic relationship with someone and they have issues, you want to support them and you want to be by their side. And then it's kind of trying to acknowledge, okay, when's the point where you have to draw the line? And am I helping this person or am I enabling them? And that I thought was a nicely done element of this show. Anyway, nothing to do with encounters, but a little tangent, something else you guys might want to check out. It's called Undone. It's on Amazon Prime. Shall we go back to the encounters program? Mm-hmm. So Tango of Longing is directed by Marta Zemanska. So moving on to Animation 3. Her story. This has come up before on the other podcast. We had Lauren Orm, who did Creepy Pasta Salad, and that's uh, playing in this category. You can find out more about that film in the most recent episode. Also, in an earlier episode, talked to Regina Pessoa, whose film Uncle Thomas, Accounting for the Days, also plays in this category, as well as Good Intentions, uh, Anna Mazzaris, who you interviewed. One film in this category that's possibly uh, a relevant one to bring up is Embraces and the Touch of Skin by Sarah Koppel. It's a name that's come up quite a bit, and I think when we've been sort of canvassing film projects and stuff like that. She's been quite busy, as I recall. Is she the vagina plates lady? Yeah. Yeah. That would be such a good dinner party conversation starter. (laughs) One thing that's definitely sort of notable about this particular director is a very distinct use of colour. She's very big and... Yeah, yeah. Very very intense sort of psychedelic. But also incredibly talented drawer. Yeah, this is kind of a mix of, you know, there is some full animation in there. An awful lot of this film is very well done, but morphs from sort of still image to still image. It's a, well, I'll read this synopsis. It's an animated poem about the vital need for embraces and contact with other beings. Who doesn't like a cuddle? Basically. Yeah. Uh, 
screening will definitely uh, be at sort of a tradition is Late Lounge. It's going to be on the Thursday at 10 p.m. The film that's kicking that one off is Cold Sore by Caitlin McCarthy. Caitlin was the guest in the last episode of Intimate Animation. So if you want to listen back to that one, you can find out more about that. But that'll be fun to see on a big screen. Moving on to Friday, uh, the first animation screening is Ubiquitous Chip. Okay. At noon. Um, I'm not quite sure what the title what means. What the hell does that mean? I will confess I don't understand. One film in this screening that kind of stood out to us uh, is a film called Hashtag 21XOXO. A girl and her online search for love in times of social media, speed dating, cyber love, hipster culture, and post-net attitudes. This is directed by Signe and Imge Orsbilge. I'm not sure. This is another film that uses a rotoscoped animation in a more kind of clean 2D way. The aesthetic of sort of modern psychedelia. I think vaporwave might be the word, the kind of visuals you associate with that, like, you know, modern retro trippy. Psychedelic, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's more than just cut and dry rotoscoping. It's a lot of very kind of densely conceived environments and scenarios, a lot of references to memes and social media and logos and the things that kind of define our lives in these cynical modern times where we're all just glued to our screens. It's actually a great life. Like, but back in the day when we had to rely on, like, just the news. I knew nothing. And newspapers. I didn't even know how to get through Spyro Level 4. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't have the internet and That's... I didn't know where the hell the bloody moon gate was. Yeah, priorities. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, you couldn't even get through games without the internet because you're like, where the hell is this mystery egg I'm meant to be finding? When I was a kid, there was a Nintendo hotline. <laughs> and you would call it. When you got stuck in, like, your oh Game Boy God. games. I've and never heard of this. depressed, like, teenagers would have to, like, man the phones and, like, I guess consult guidebooks. Oh, my God. And um, they were really horrible conversations because you'd have to be like, Hello, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm on World 3 of Mario Land 2 and I can't find the fifth golden coin. Which cave do I go in? And the group, all right, yeah. You have to go into the big metal pig and then hit the third block on the left and there'll be a big vine that appears. <laughs> and that was how we found out how to get through games. Thank you. That will be 50 quid. Oh, yeah. My uh, my parents weren't too thrilled because <laughs> it was not a cheap like, phone call. It was a premium rate line. Holy hell. You are old. <laughs> 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 that yeah. is the oldest you've ever made me feel you are. <laughs> Did you find porn in the woods too? Yeah, everyone found porn in the woods, surely. We like, had the internet, Grandpa. Like Hampton Woods. My my generation didn't have to go outside ever. Yeah. And we didn't. Anyway, this film is... In a way, it's, it's very reminiscent of the sort of earlier uses of rotoscoping the way that there's a very kind of minimal detail mm. uh, and it's it's a lot like lucy in the sky with diamonds like yeah. that sequence and um hotel e by Preet pan i think probably is what came to mind the most like it's it's almost like an homage to that but yeah i mean it's you know it's it's fun it's 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 pretty silly it's not very like serious i think with its messages it's but kind of a deluge of, of the animation style they're kind of very high Frame rate at some points is probably mimicking GIF culture as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things, it's like anything that's kind of like got that post-digital or digital apocalyptic style, mm-hmm. which is becoming quite popular because everyone's like so sick of phones, even though they're never off them. It was quite a nice way of dealing with that, even though I've seen quite a lot of films that deal with like the horrificness or the kind of throwaway culture of digital. It was quite... A- smart film yeah. in the way it sort of brought all of those elements together. One more, I guess, before we go back to uh, Mind My Mind. Uh, this is the closing film of Animation 6, which is Fake News. That'll be at 6pm on the Friday. Uh, it's called Happy Ending, and it's by Yoonju Arachoi. With real testimony from a Korean prostitute, this beautiful painted animation explores what it's like to be the subject of other people's pleasure. 
I found it quite interesting because it kind of talks about how obviously she is seen as a sex object and the things that men say to her about like why they find her appealing and I guess we're meant to glean that this is how people feel about prostitutes in general, how prostitutes feel about themselves in general and the fact that one of the things that makes them arouse is the fact that she's clearly so horny because otherwise why would she have sex with so many men and that's always been the thing with prostitution that's always confused me is whether the women are actually enjoying themselves because in order for the sex to be even remotely comfortable, never alone, like, I'm not expecting them to be, like, in love or enjoying it in, on that kind of level. But they would have to be in a certain position mentally and physically in order for it to be doable. I think physically they can bring their own things to help things along. You know? Yeah, and she sort of discusses how sometimes she does enjoy it as well. Yeah. Because I think you just, I don't know, you just, as someone that hasn't had people pay me for sex, you just wouldn't assume you would ever enjoy it? I guess people who just aren't part of that world and couldn't really sort of possibly know. I'm sure there are plenty of people who are sex workers that don't really get much out of it and it's just kind of a nine to five. And then on the, the horrible end of the spectrum, there are people who are kind of trapped in this lifestyle that's very, to them, degrading and abusive. And then on the other end, there are people who have really kind of owned it and made it work for them, and they have this kind of entrepreneurial mind about it and are able to handle themselves. It's a pretty broad, I think, spectrum, and I think probably the same applies to pornographic actors. Some people find themselves working out of necessity and because they don't have other options left or they don't think they do. And then some people, they just kind of throw themselves into it, and it's just like, eh, it's a laughing. So yeah, a few little animation highlights from this year's Encounters Festival. That's happening this week. Hope to see some of you there. Uh, like I mentioned, I'll be doing the filmmaker Q&As after each of the screenings. Preempting that, we have a more extensive interview with Floor Adams, who directed Mind My Mind. I'm just going to read her bio from her website. Floor Adams is an animation director based in the Netherlands, she graduated cum laude in 2005 at the Department of Fine Arts at the Artes Institute of the Arts. She also spent six months studying animation as an Erasmus student at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts, Ghent. After graduating, she worked on different commissions for public broadcasting, MTV, the Government of the Netherlands, publishers, and documentary filmmakers. Her art was on display in museums, galleries, and at film festivals. Before Floor started focusing on producing animation full-time, she'd been working for several years in psychiatry and as a carer for mentally disabled people. The experience in education, as well as psychiatry, these are both, I think, quite crucial components of this film in particular. As I mentioned before, it's a film about a young man who struggles with a sort of deficit of emotional intuition, He's on the autism spectrum. He has very clearly defined passions in his life, and that tends to obfuscate his social ability, which is a pretty common theme. But I think the other thing that this film addresses is that just simply sort of being, you know, having a certain diagnosis doesn't necessarily mean that your behavior is going to be 100% consistent with everyone else who has that diagnosis. And what you get from this character is that he's you know, very individual. Uh, he has his own internal way of compartmentalizing his emotions and his thoughts and what's going on and all of the kind of cues he has like, learned to pick up on. And navigating a social situation is a bit like driving a car through rough terrain or flying an airplane, I suppose. And so he imagines a figure in his brain that is sort of the controller in the control room of his mind while he's trying to get something off the ground with a young woman that he meets at a party. So then I guess it's a sort of main setup. I think what carries the film through is after this kind of initial meeting that this woman who is interested in him and starts to learn about what's going on with him and where he's at, how she's able to kind of help him through the sort of early stages of this new, what to him is a quite new situation. I think you and I both watched this one together when I was going through them, and I think we both had pretty much the exact same kind of reaction to it. It was really lovely. Yeah, I really liked it, and I liked seeing... It's interesting knowing that she has this uh, past history 
in psychology and working with uh, people with disabilities because that makes me more at ease with the film as well because it's always that kind because it's quite a common trope or you thing that's used in animation you're always worried that the person doing it is maybe coming at it from not a position of knowledge or personal experience and you would always hope that they'd at least done their research but i'm always a bit like eh. yeah. and it's not like this film came off like that but i always worry that people with autism get presented wrongly because it's such a broad spectrum yeah. and the temptation with this kind of film, especially as it's kind of the main focus point of the film, would be to really lay it on thick and make him really struggle very, very harshly with things, which he does, but not in a kind of, like, stereotypical way. Like, you can definitely... What I always think is interesting when they show these kind of things, the same with, like, when they show films about OCD or anything like that, is showing how the brain... how Like, visually showing how their brains work things out. Um, which I think helps a lot for people that really don't understand why someone would freak out about someone touching something in the wrong way or in an intimate moment just taking it that one step too far before they were 100% ready for it. And I think that's quite interesting and I think that's what this film really does very well is treat this uh, condition very sensitively and knowledgeably. Absolutely. I think that's something, I mean, I think the interview, as you'll hear, we talk a lot more about that side of things than really the sort of love story element of it. That it is a love story and that kind of shines through, you know, I think is, is, makes it a pretty good candidate for this podcast. But I think, yeah, the meat of the issue is a lot more to do with that sort of side of things. The thing I also found quite interesting is that there's an actual sex scene in it. Yeah. Which I don't think I've ever seen in a film that tackles autism. Yeah, I mean the f- it's a it's a very very different kind of film and I think I, I it does come up as well but like the only other sort of long form film that immediately comes to mind dealing with autism or Asperger's is Mary and Max. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't a romantic love story. No, but there's elements like there's that woman in um Max's building who is attracted to him and he doesn't know how to handle it. And Mary has the the doomed marriage, and yeah. yeah. But the difference of that is that, like, he has Asperger's, but like very, very strongly. Mm. But this character is more on the borderline, like very high functioning, but just certain things are too much. Yeah, and I think that's what I found quite interesting is because you just you wouldn't not assume is the wrong word, but you would you'd think that someone that finds social interaction hard that sex would just be almost completely out of the question because uh. sex for someone that isn't on the spectrum would, it can also be, I mean, it's riddled with like, oh, did that mean that? Or what did that mean? Or, oh, does that, you know, and then you have... Does like, this go there? <laughs> but just the kind of like uncertainty of everything. There's a lot of social cues that can be misinterpreted anyway. When you kind of, I always think of autism as like emotional dyslexia. Okay. In a way, because of being dyslexic, that's the best way I can sort of understand being that level of unable to handle things. Is I like, suppose that makes sense, yeah, when you have... Like, when you're like, well, how could you not know that that's how that's spelled? I'm like, I just don't see it mm. as that. Like, those rules don't apply to me. So you, I've just never seen autism and sexual relationship covered in that way, which, of course, most people do have that interaction at some point in their lives. Yeah. But I just thought that was an interesting element. Yeah, and it's something, I mean, she'll explain more in a minute, but yeah, it's something that used real life uh, experience as a sort of jumping off point. Certainly, I think the concern that this is a film that has any insensitivity to it or exists for its own sake and just sort of picked a condition, uh, that's certainly, there's no issue really as regards to the film. Like, with the background she has on top of quite a lot of additional research and legwork. It's a very well-rounded film, and it presents the case really well. And it's been received very well by the medical community and the autistic community, and that's, again, something that we'll kind of go into. In fact, it might be worth kicking off the interview now. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, let's hear from Flo Adams discussing her film Mind My Mind. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about your sort of background and your studies, what ultimately kind of 
led you down the path to animation direction? Well, I started, I I went to to a school, let's see, how do you call it? Art therapy. I, I don't know if it's an English word, art therapy. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I, I was uh, studying to be an art therapist uh, first, and then I went to art school to study uh, fine arts. And from the beginning, I wanted to do something with animation, but I thought it was like something you have to get into in a couple of years or so, not from the beginning, because there weren't many animation schools at the time. So I'm kind of a self-made animator. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think during the third year or so, I went to Ghent, Belgium, which got a really uh, brilliant animation school called Gask. And um, so I went there for six months. And then, then I went back to my normal art school again. And um, I graduated with Bachelor of Fine Art, I think. That's the name. Yeah, and then, then I want, just wanted to make animation. So I was uh, during the time I was um, uh, working in a mentally health care institute. And well, after a while, I quit. And then I started working for companies, doing uh, commissioned work. I always had the feeling I wanted to make an own film, but I never, well, I did some short things, um, but not that not that big of a project as my mind. And then during my days as a teacher, which I did during the same time, I was teaching animation to autistic students. I thought, well, this is my subject. This is something I can relate to. And I think I'm the person to make a, make a film about this. So, um, well, that's, and that's what I did like the last 10 years of my life. So it's, <laughs> it's um, I think it's a bit big, um, it was a big project for me. Yeah. When you were working then in psychiatry and mental health, did you have the idea, I guess, for the film while you were doing this? Or did the opportunity to make the film sort of come later and it was more sort of drawing on that past experience? Uh, the psychiatrist uh, bit and um, mentally disabled bit, which I also I worked on some of mentally disabled. I organized activities for them and um, stuff like that. And um, I first I quit that job um, because I was I was feeling kind of stuck. I, I graduated in art school. I wanted to do something with my drawings with my work uh, as in, in animation or in illustration and at the same time I had to por- pay for my house and my rent and I was working like three three days a week with mentally disabled and well I felt I was kind of stuck at the time um, because I wasn't able to dive into the world of being like an artist or so so um, I quit that job and then I um, well, there was, it was an art school in, there was some sort of new art school in my hometown and they wanted to do something for students with autism who are, uh, these students were very talented within art and they were interested in having me as their animation teacher. So uh, it was like a gradual path from being, being like an activity host within the mental health care and with mentally disabled into uh, an art teacher <laughs> in animation and then then the idea grew yeah grew to do something with with autism my work is always related to other people you know also my my my, my, my small animation projects or my uh, my my um, commissioned work also they're also they're they're all related to human behavior or things like that yeah i think i guess the angle of this particular film being at its heart a love story on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. Was that something that came from your work or was it? Okay. Well, um, the first idea, um, uh, there was one of my students was talking about the uh, Tokyo subway system, about how many trains there were, what the names of the stations were called, how many suicide attempts there were, things like that. He knew very, very much about the subject. And uh, I was really fascinated by the fact that he just, he knew so much about these things, and I was thinking, where do you keep all this information? Where do you stuck it in your head? How does it look like? And then he told me it, it all sounded really marvelous, but for him it was like more of a burden because he knew all this stuff, but he wasn't capable of remembering to do his homework or to plan his day, or uh, he had so many difficulties. And well, yeah, it got me thinking about how, do you, how does this head of him look like from the inside? 
does he have drawers or baskets or cupboards or how does it hmm. so I started thinking about that and during the same time um, well it has nothing to do with being being like um, my work but I uh, fell in love with someone who uh, turned out to have Asperger's syndrome which was at the time like a normal um, normal thing to say now we say all people have um, autism we don't call it Asperger's anymore but um for the people who understand what I'm, what I mean, it was <laughs> Asperger's syndrome, sure, and sure. Um, it was kind of funny because he he thought there was something different with him, and I was thinking, well, I I don't know, I think you're mistaken because you're like things you, you're saying sounds really normal, and you're like going, you're doing your things, you're playing in a band, and you're an archaeologist, so that's like you man you manage. So what's what you're not like my students who also manage but they have difficulties like really difficulties in their day-to-day life we had we spent a lot of time together and it was during the time that i found out well there is something going on and he got diagnosed and uh so it was kind of a surprise but also not really once you once you're in someone's environment you see there are a lot of things that are difficult for people so i wanted to make a film about that about the people of which you you don't when you meet them there's nothing seems to be nothing wrong but in their heads there's some there's a lot going on and other things that you don't see and don't know and i um i went to talk to people with autism uh, i interviewed them i interviewed my old, old students i sent all these facebook messengers with questions all about their love life and their like all the things i could ask now because i wasn't not a teacher anymore um because i quit <laughs> the job as well uh, so uh, I got all these honest answers and I started writing. So it's, I think it's a mixture really, like a mixture of my own experiences as being uh, someone who falls in love with someone with Asperger's syndrome and their vision or their uh, experiences in their daily life. Yeah. Yeah. So from your like conversations with people then, because it's the very effective through line in the film is the dynamic between Chris and Hans in his head. Mm-hmm. And is that a sort of common interpretation of how people with emotional limitations maybe process the world as a kind of separate entity compartmentalizing things and cataloging things? I have no I I I don't think so. I think it's Okay. Well, Hans is some sort of uh, information processor. You can mm-hmm. call him that because it's also people with autism have, tend to have information processing things, problems, but I, I, well, you could, you know, Hans is not the Asperger or the autism in someone's head, but you could think about him in that way. And I asked all people with autism, the people I know with autism, what do you think is the best way to, what what do you say? Do you say, I am a person with autism or do you say I'm autistic? Because that's mm. like a different yeah, it's 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 is it something in your identity? Is it something you are born with, or is it something like I'm me and I have difficulties because of my autism? Is it like a different identity in your what? Well, yeah, you can call it that way. Uh, and everyone thinks <laughs> differently, so that's really it's it's also a difficult uh, theme in a way because um, people have so many different opinions about the same thing about their experience so yeah yeah i don't know yeah well it was a sort of an interesting um i mean it's a very it's a it's a longer film in the sort of world of short films and i think there's more (laughs) kind of scope for it being more of a kind of fully developed world as far as the characterizations go and i thought that the overall like the sort of I guess the role of the well-intentioned friend as well as the kind of main love interest story. I thought that was very effective. The kind of, the guy who perhaps doesn't know so much what's going on with Chris, but will mm-hmm. kind of casually say something like, Oh, don't be so autistic. Mm-hmm. And the way I guess that kind of contributes to the sort of social anxiety, that sort of thing. Yes. It didn't seem like it was a film that had a kind of, agenda in its mind of like you know fighting the social stigmas so much but i thought the kind of way it kind of casually addressed that sort of element mm-hmm. was quite well done thank you <laughs> that's a compliment yes it's like it's a very universal theme i think it's not about 
it is about autism, but it's about everyone who thinks differently and a lot of people who are wired differently. So it's, I hope it opens up conversations until this time it did, because people are talking about it and say, relate to the film or know someone who does act strange in a way. Or um, So people, I love the outcome, you know, people respond to the film in the way I hoped for all this time. And I didn't want to generalize or... Yes, I just wanted to open up the conversation in a subtle way, not like really in your face or so. Yeah. One thing I'm also kind of interested in generally when it comes to making and developing short films are the sort of different territories, funding circumstances, and how these types of projects are able to actually get off the ground. Um, Mm -hmm. Here in the UK, it's been a pretty bleak state of affairs. We're kind of turning a bit of a corner at the moment, hopefully. But uh, from what I gather, this film funding was secured for like in increments. Was this kind of a journey in stages? Like, were you developing it piece by piece as it went, or did you kind of have this very fully realized idea to begin with, and then it was a sort of case of finding whatever funding there was available for it? It is a kind of a strange story, I think. I intentionally wanted to make a film of uh, 11 minutes long because I thought it was like uh, some sp- <laughs> uh, it sounded like a nice length <laughs> so it sounded like really stupid but it was uh, in a way I thought I um, I wanted to make a film um, 11 minutes sounds good um, I uh, applied for funding in my province like in the Netherlands with these provinces and I won a prize in my home city and I got some I had some um, work in museum or gallery, so I thought, well, this is a good place for me to start. And uh, they, uh, well, I applied for funding and I got it then. So that was the first bit, and that was like 65% of the whole budget because I couldn't get any more. And uh, (laughs) and I was kind of surprised, like, wow, all this money, what is (laughs) <laughs> well, I made a, I made a really good budget, and it was really like my, my it was it was all, but but it was like kind of a surprise. Well, wow, this is so much money, and how do I how do I deal with this? But I then I worked on this script, and then the storyboard, and the animatic, and the animatic was like it was fifty minutes long, or maybe even twenty minutes long, and it was also me and my husband we uh, recorded all the voices. So we had like my bad English and his like better English and then uh, and also Dutch and that all together in one. So it was the, 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 the timing was kind of odd sometimes. Mm-hmm. Then after a couple of years, I ran into an Oscar winning producer called uh, Willem Dijsen and he produced A Father and Daughter amongst other films. And he said, well, that's a good idea. Can I co-produce? Can we do this together? So um, because you need a producer to apply for funding uh, at the Dutch Film Fund, uh, you need someone else to produce it um, next to the director. Like I couldn't produce the whole film. So I was a co-producer and he was a co-producer. And he, we applied for funding. And then I retimed for this purpose i redimed the animatic and then it was like 20 minutes long and he was saying well you should keep it under 15 because it will be very difficult and maybe they say no when it's over 15 minutes so i made it into 15 minutes but it was like really tight and really speedy and then um there was no time left to to uh for the audience to see what they're to, like to feel what they're seeing or there were, was no room for dots and pulses and everything so after we got the money I made the animatic again <laughs> and, and uh, I retimed everything with the voices and the voices were um, well it's it's all English spoken so some things take a little more time to say in English than in Dutch so uh, it had to be longer and then it became 30 minutes and then we had to uh, go to our uh, neighbors in Belgium to co-produce again (laughs) and uh, well there you go (laughs) so now we've got three producers and uh, 30 minutes uh, short long shorts 
in the end. So it's like a, I think it's like a Lego house or something, brick by brick. <laughs> um, yes, so it's not like the really the, the average way I think to to do this. And I'm not sure how this will work with a future project. So um, I think we're lucky that it turned out to go pretty well. But that's encouraging to hear. I'm wondering about like the overall length then, because as short filmmakers, we often sort of get told to keep it shorter than not. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's been very nice to see it's been performing very well. Yeah. And it's been winning awards. And I, did it get eligible for Oscar consideration recently? Yes, it did. Yes. It's amazing. We're, we're, we're doing, we're, we're having our um, LA run right now, our Oscar qualifying run, because it was uh, chosen by a, um, a jury of Dutch uh, film professionals to uh, be submitted. So we won in a way. We won. Mm-hmm. That means that I International, which is our promoter for our Dutch films abroad, uh, they um, uh, facilitate this. So they arrange the screening, which will start today in LA for one week, and then we can uh, qualify. And um, yes, so this is yeah. Normally, uh, well, you can qualify through festivals, and that's um, of course what we hoped for, and we won a lot of prizes, but just not just well the wrong ones <laughs> <It sounds> like, <laughs> yeah. like like indie shorts festival is a really great festival it's a heart from heartlands um uh in uh indianapolis and we won the uh the animation award um but um uh, the festival is also qualifying for all the categories except for animation so oh. they will be next year we think they will be next year but it's just like like really yeah it's a shame so it's just it's very, very, very nice that we can qualify through our international and uh, with their support. Yes. And we hope it will be fruitful, of course. Yes. And it's really uh, encouraging that even the films with this length can also be successful in the short film range. Yes. Mm. But the, the, the commissions, they need to sit down for a 30-minute short, which takes a lot of time and a lot of effort also to get really into and all the prizes it won so far really helped to get it out there like people are interested in seeing the film now even though it's 30 minutes they'll sit for it they, they'll, they'll wait for it because people say it's like a good film so yeah it's all really interesting that it's it's going better and better in a way yeah well i kind of think of like because i the, the film that came to mind watching this just as we're kind of always sort of scouting for films that deal with pairing animation with themes of love and relationships and <laughs> sexual dynamics. It's yes. it's rare that it kind of is partnered with the sort of mental issue that we have in this film. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's kind of an appetite for that. Like films that do sort of explore, because it's, I mean, especially now in this sort of day and age where we've, you know, we're in this, I think, transitional phase of fully understanding or reevaluating what boundaries are when it comes mm-hmm. to uh, beginning relationships and approaching people. And I think people are, are becoming a bit more educated in general. Mm-hmm. But when you have this whole other set of like things that will hold you back or shackle you socially, mm-hmm. it's got to be a very daunting prospect. I think that's another reason why people are quite happy to sort of sit through it for half an hour and, you know, as, as well as being entertaining, it's also, you know, it's compelling and you care about this guy. Good to hear. That's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. And sort of in that, that same area, now that it's been out in the world a bit, have you had feedback from, well, I'm sure you've heard from, like, audiences and general responses. But have, has anyone sort of from, I guess, the autistic community, if that's a term, or the sort of medical community had any thoughts about it? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, during the, uh, during the whole, uh, production process, I asked people with autism or, or organizations to take a look at it. Um, we also presented it during, uh, during, uh, like, um, how do you call it? Like, uh, some sort of Congress for people who were investigating autism and love or autism and relationships mm. um, and it was so good to see that people were responding so intense to our rough animatic because it was in the beginning or during the time the film was like half made so what the beginning was 
uh, animated and colored, and the backgrounds were like mm, not really well, not not really ready. Um, but then in the end of the film, it was like all very rough animation and also storyboard like, and my with my scribbly uh, lines. And uh, but they were so into the story, and they said, well. It's, it's finished. It's, it's, it's like, it's ready. I said, no, it's not ready. There were no colors. There was nothing. And they said, oh, well, I, I, I wasn't aware of it. I thought it was <laughs> ready. Or, like, they were so into the story. And that was um, the moment that I thought, uh, thought well, we're, we're on the right path. This is going to work. Um, when people feel related and when people feel like um, uh, represented, that's the that's the moment you know you're doing something which is uh, good for this particular audience or particular group of people. And then we, I also asked uh, the people I interviewed uh, to watch it uh, now and then, and um, we had test screenings with them. And when it was finished, I uh, sent it to like autism organizations to ask their uh, support. I, they 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 saw it and they wrote about they wrote about it. They uh, did some interviews with me. Um, they uh, announced the film. So there were a lot of responses already before the film was out there, which was also kind of hard because then you've got this full email box and you can't do anything about it except for saying, "Well, you have to wait a little longer. We're not there yet." Um, so there were people, a lot of people waiting for this film to come out. And um, well, even now. It's it's like yeah, organizations use it uh, in their um, well autism congresses or uh, like team environments. They book the film, and oh, well, I also asked uh, like what's his name again, um, Baron Cohen. The show, you know who I mean by Sasha, Sasha Baron Baron Cohen. Oh, the the actor. Um, the actor. He, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. he's got a an uncle or a nephew, I'm not sure. And he's a really well-known autism researcher. He works at Cambridge and he also endorsed the film and he wrote some things about it. So that also helps like people who are, who are really into professional autism experts endorse the film. And that makes a lot of, well, that, that helps a lot uh, getting your film into the world and to, yeah, to reach the audience you want. Yes. Absolutely. That's really nice to hear, you know, because it's, it is sort of one thing having a kind of resonance with the general public, but that, you know, <laughs> there's a kind of expert take on it that feels that it's dealing with the subject matter sensitively is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember about a year ago, there was a play, I think, I forget if it was here in the States, but it was a play about raising a kid with autism. And I didn't see it, but I, I read a lot about it during this sort of furore where it was a play, I guess, for people who struggle with the relationship, but it, to autistic people watching it, it was enormously offensive <laughs> and not intentionally, but there were little missteps like the autistic character is represented by a puppet and that in a kind of very literal way was offensive the struggles I think were depicted in a way that was kind of designed to make people with autism feel bad, but again, not intentionally. And it just seemed like with perhaps a bit more kind of diligence along the way, as, uh, as you clearly did with your film and, you know, other people, or just maybe common sense, you'd be able to create something that could make the same point, but mm -hmm. not in an upsetting way, or just in a way that kind of, ruffled some feathers um so yeah, it's especially nice to sort of hear that you know people looking at the end result have sort of validated it this was kind of my main goals to to make a film um people feel uh, represented by because there are a lot of series and films about autism and um once you start googling the reactions to for to this these series or films there are many people say, well, I'm not like this. And why is it so stereotypical? Why, why uh, I don't count matches. I'm not like Rain Man. I'm not uh, like the good doctor or um, some people even say Dexter is autistic. So it's, um, I thought I want to make something that's, that shows a different side of autism. Um, but also it's it, like, like Chris is not the, the 
autist. <laughs> the, the one and only autistic man yeah. in the world. The, like the super autistic. Well, it's, it's, everyone is different. So it, it's not like everyone says, well, that's me. You know, yeah. you look at my mind and you think, you see it's me. But people can say, well, this is how I feel like being in a social situation or this is how uh, my brain works or this is why i sometimes take some more time to answer a question because i don't process what you're asking i don't mean to generalize but i think with reason people with autism can be very critical about the representation of autism hmm. and i think it's a very big compliment to get all these reactions from people who are happy with what you make. Thank you to Floor Adams. And just a reminder that Mind My Mind is screening this Thursday, September 26th, at the Encounters Festival here in Bristol. It's in the program Animation 4 Get Real, which will be at 6 p.m. in Cinema 1 at the Watershed. As with all the screenings this week, I'll be chatting with the filmmakers afterward, just down the hall in Waterside 1. Floor, I believe, will be in attendance this week, as will Laura Beth and myself, and the rest of the squiggly, motley crew. It's sure to be a grand time. You can keep up to speed with the further progress of Mind My Mind at mindmymind.nl, and you can find Floor Adams on Twitter, at AdamsFloor. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell, and Laura Beth is at LB Cowley. Squiggly is at Squiggly, also at Squiggly Animation on Instagram and Squiggly Magazine on Facebook. The website, of course, is squiggly.com. We'll be back relatively soon for Episode 3, Season 3 of Intimate Animation. Until then, I've been Ben Mitchell. And I've been Laura Beth Cowley. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.